0: We open the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, reading again the entire chapter, and now focusing our attention on verses 8 through 11, which will be our text. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Again, the text, verses 8 through 11, charity never faileth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to this text and come to verse 8, we come to a hinge or a turning point in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Really this chapter, as it gives us the Bible's beautiful teaching on true Christian love, this chapter has three main sections, verses 1 through 3. Emphasize to us the superiority of love over every other spiritual gift. And emphasize that without love, no other spiritual gift can profit or do you any good. The body of the chapter, which we have now just finished, verses 4-7, through give the chapter's expansive and beautiful description of love, teaches us what love is, by showing us how love thinks and how love acts. True love is identified, is known by its attitudes, its actions. Now verse 8 begins the third and final section of the chapter, which especially sets before us the long-lastingness, indeed the everlastingness of love. And in so doing, the last verses of the chapter... Give us a window into heaven. Having painted that beautiful portrait of love. The chapter now opens a window into heaven. And it shows us that this love made perfect is what heaven will be all about. This love made perfect will be at the heart of life in heaven in glory with God. And thus this gift of love is again shown to be the greatest of all God's gifts. And the chapter comes back to where it started. The superiority of love. For love, unlike these other spiritual gifts, is a gift that lasts forever and is carried over and reaches its perfection in heavenly glory. And it's that heavenly glory especially that the last couple verses of the chapter focus on. And so we're going to take up these verses, verses 8 through 11, and look especially at the main idea that's at the head of those verses. Love never fails. To put it another way, love is everlasting. That will be our theme. The everlastingness of love. Two points. First, we're going to look at how this everlastingness of love is its crowning excellence. Many excellencies of love have been set forth in this chapter. And this is the crown of them all. This gift of love that is brought in the heart of the child of God by the Spirit is one that endures into eternity. It's like a seed planted now that reaches its full bloom in heaven. A crowning excellency. But then we will also notice, especially in verse 11, that the text teaches us that this love which the Spirit works in our hearts here and now in this life is the mark, the outstanding characteristic of spiritual maturity. Again, fitting with the idea that love is the chief of God's gifts and thus as the child of God grows in grace, there is to be a growth, a maturing in love. The everlastingness of love, a crowning excellence, a mark of maturity. The first portion of the text, verses 8 through 9, sets before us the everlastingness of love. Charity never faileth. And the text does this by contrasting love with other spiritual gifts that are good and important that God gives the church, gives his people in this life. And the text shows that love is greater than them all because love outlasts them all. Verse 8 mentions specifically three gifts. Whether there be prophecies, There's one, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. There's two. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, why the Apostle Paul selects these three gifts to contrast with love... We can understand when we remember some of the context that we looked at earlier in the series. You remember one of the problems that the Corinthian church had is that they esteemed certain spiritual gifts far too highly. They put them up on a pedestal as it were. And because they had these gifts, they neglected others such as love, the most important gift. Things like prophecy, like tongues, speaking in tongues especially. Many of the Corinthians were enamored with that outwardly flashy gift such that they prized it above all others and were proud if they possessed it and looked down on those who did not. And so Paul is still in this chapter addressing those problems in the Corinthian church, emphasizing the supremacy of love. And now he illustrates that point further by showing love is everlasting. Whereas these other gifts that the Corinthians prized so highly, though they are important, don't last forever. So let's run through those three quickly a moment. First, there is the gift of prophecy. And When the text speaks of prophecy here, the focus is not so much on the content of prophesying, but upon the act of prophesying. Prophesying, of course, is the spirit-given ability to receive and to proclaim God's revelation, His Word. And in scripture, there are two main aspects or dimensions to prophecy. There is the special kind of prophecy that we see in the Old Testament and continuing through the apostolic age, where a prophet or one called by God to that office of proclaiming his word would receive a direct revelation from God in a vision or something of that sort. And that direct revelation, the prophet then communicated to God, others we see that in the apostolic age you think of the prophet agabus for example who brought a word to the apostle paul about his future imprisonment in jerusalem and agabus knew of that by a direct revelation of the spirit or you think of the spirit's activity of inspiring the very scriptures that we read this evening but then the second aspect of prophecy is Simply the teaching and proclaiming of the Scriptures. And while that special kind of prophecy came to its end at the close of the Apostolic Age, when the Bible was finished, there was no longer a need for that special direct revelation because it's all here in the Scriptures. All that God intends for us to know is provided here in the Bible. And so at the end of the apostolic age, special prophecy ceased. But what continued was the ordinary prophecy, the forth telling, the proclamation and teaching of the scriptures. And so for our purposes, the text is speaking only of that second aspect of prophecy. Though in Paul's day, these words would have applied to both. Now, we readily recognize that prophecy is no small gift. Prophecy is not something that's insignificant. It is important because prophecy, the proclaiming of God's word, is the chief instrument God has ordained for the edification of his people. It's the instrument God uses to impart saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to his people. It's the instrument he uses to spread the gospel. That's very, very important. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing. By the word of God. Second gift mentioned in the text is speaking in tongues. This was a special gift given just during the apostolic age in order to facilitate the spread of the gospel. Speaking in tongues was simply a spirit given ability to speak in tongues other human languages which a person had not previously studied or learned. Contrary to the common notion of the Pentecostals today, speaking in tongues is not rambling on in some unknown tongue or uttering gibberish, but speaking in tongues was the speaking of real human languages. And the proof of that is Pentecost, the very first speaking in tongues, where the 120 spoke of the marvelous works of God in real human languages that were understood by all of the strangers and pilgrims in Jerusalem. The whole point of that gift was not to be flashy, but to enable the progress of the Great Commission, to overcome language barriers such that the gospel could go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth very quickly, and the Catholicity of Christ's church be made manifest. It was a gift intended to facilitate the preaching of the gospel, and it was a gift that ended, ceased, with the death of the apostles. Thirdly, there is the gift of knowledge mentioned here. And the reference here is not so much to general knowledge, but the focus is especially upon spiritual knowledge. Now part of it is, connected with the special kind of prophecy that took place in the Old Testament and in the apostolic age. When God gave direct revelation to a prophet, he imparted a special knowledge directly to that prophet that the prophet then would communicate to others. That's in view here. But more broadly, it refers to our spiritual knowledge of God gained from his revelation. The spiritual knowledge of God In the form that we have it today. Which as verse 9 says and we'll look at in more detail later is in part, that is it's partial. We have true knowledge of God right now through his word but it is not yet complete knowledge. So those three gifts are mentioned here because they were three gifts that the Corinthians prized and put up on a pedestal. Important they are But now, Paul emphasizes the even greater importance of love by contrasting love with these very important gifts. And he does so by showing that even these important gifts will not last forever. What does he say in verse 8? Charity never faileth. But, and that's a significant but, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Not maybe, not might, shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And that's the contrast here. These gifts, important as they are, shall pass away, whereas love shall not pass away. That tongues shall cease, that's easy for us to understand. That gift has already ceased because its God-given purpose was fulfilled. And so God stopped giving that gift at the close of the apostolic age. But what about prophecy? Prophecy which we understand now to be the teaching and the proclamation of the word of God. That's going to fail? What does that mean? Let's understand that that word fail there in the text doesn't mean that the word of God is going to fail to accomplish its purpose. We know from Isaiah 50 that no word that comes out of the mouth of God returns to him void. And when his written word is proclaimed and the spirit employs it either to the softening or the hardening of a human heart, that word never returns to God void. The word of God does not fail. That's not the idea of the text, but the word fail here has this as its meaning. It means to become no longer necessary, such that it may be set aside, done away with in the sense of being decommissioned. Prophecies, the teaching, the proclamation, the preaching of the word of God will eventually Become unnecessary. Eventually the day will come. When the preaching and teaching of the word. Will come to an end. That's not right now. In this present age we need that preaching. And we need that teaching. And we need that word. But the day is coming. When preaching and teaching. And the exposition of the Bible. All that we call prophecy will be divinely decommissioned the way perhaps a navy vessel that served very well is decommissioned after its usefulness is finished, after it has served its purpose. That's the idea. And the same then applies to the gift of knowledge. And that might seem strange to us. How is knowledge going to pass away? The idea is not that the day will come when our minds are wiped when we will lose all of our knowledge of God, or knowledge won't be a thing anymore. That's not the case. Did not Jesus say in John 17 verse 3, This is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God. Life eternal there is described as knowing God. But When the text says that knowledge will vanish away, and the word vanish away is the exact same word as Fail, used to describe prophecies. It's saying knowledge as we know it is going to vanish away. Our present knowledge will be changed and so elevated and vastly expanded. It will be freed from the present limitations of our earthliness and the corruption of our sinfulness. There is a greater knowledge that will come to the children of God in the age to come. So that even knowledge as we know it will pass away. Why? Why? Why will these great gifts, especially now prophecy and knowledge, why will they fail and pass away? Well, that's where verses 9 and 10 come into the picture. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Paul here is describing the entire New Testament age. He's describing everything leading up to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. What that means is, our knowledge is partial. Our teaching and proclamation of the revelation of God is partial. That's different than fragmentary. The idea is not that our Christian knowledge is like a bunch of scattered fragments that have no connection to each other. No, the word of God that has been given us is so very rich, you can never get to the bottom of this Bible. A thousand lifetimes wouldn't get you to the bottom of it. There is a cohesive whole here, the knowledge of God. And yet, What an amazing statement this is. That all of the knowledge of God contained in this scripture, and all of the teaching that could be brought forth and elicited from this Bible, is only in part. It's partial. It's incomplete. Corinthians needed to hear that. They were pretty proud of how much they knew. And Paul's saying, Even if you know everything that you can know on this side of glory. It's only in part. Only in part. The day is coming, verse 10 says. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And done away here is the same word that we have at the end of verse 8. Vanish away. And the same word that we have. Describing prophecies, they shall fail. That which is in part shall be decommissioned and set aside to make way for the perfect. That word perfect simply means the complete, the fulfillment, the reaching of the goal. What Paul is describing here is the ushering in of the fullness of the kingdom of Christ upon the day of his second coming. He's talking about the fulfillment of God's counsel. When God will be all in all. He's talking about our perfection. When the Lord Jesus returns and he raises the bodies. And he unites our souls with our bodies. And we are complete again. Refashioned fully in his image. And we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. That's the perfect that is to come. That's when everything will reach its goal. Everything will reach its God-ordained goal fulfilled. And when that perfect, the perfection comes, all that is in part will pass away. Because it's been fulfilled. It served its purpose. It's no longer necessary or useful because the perfect has come. And that's how we're to understand the eventual passing away of our knowledge in its present form. Of the teaching and preaching of the scriptures and indeed of the very Bible itself. Not because there is anything false in this Bible but because the fullness will have come preaching and teaching as useful and necessary as it was here in this present state will not be necessary anymore in heaven. Its usefulness will be used up, you might say. An example or an illustration. A flashlight is a very useful thing at night in the dark. So too, our knowledge... Derived from the scriptures and prophecy and teaching is a very useful and necessary thing in the darkness of this world. But in broad daylight when the sun has reached its height. You have no need for that flashlight anymore. Not because it's bad. Not because it wasn't a good gift when it was given to you. But it's simply not necessary because the sun shines its light. It illuminates everything. And so it will be when the perfect has come. When we reach eternal glory. When the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be the light. And we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he will dwell with us. There will be no need for these other gifts. They will be divinely decommissioned and pass away. Now Paul says, not so love. Those things, Corinthians, that you esteem to be the highest spiritual blessings, they're only temporary, they're transitory, they will swiftly pass away. But love, this gift, Corinthians, that you have been neglecting, love is the greatest gift of God that does not fail. These do not last, but love is everlasting. That's the idea of that first phrase now in verse 8. Charity never faileth. Now, in the rest of the text we find that word fail, occur, but that's a different word. The beginning of verse 8, love never fails. This word fail means to fall over. To collapse. To fall down such that there's no usefulness to the thing that has collapsed and fallen down. Think of the walls of Jericho. When God caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, they became of no effect. They were useless now. They did nothing. They afforded no protection to the city. They were destroyed. Love never falls down. The idea being... This love, the love as described in 1 Corinthians 13, this true spiritual Christian love wrought in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, this true spiritual love which is a fruit of saving faith in Jesus Christ, this love will never fall down. It will never be destroyed. It will never get to a point where it is no longer necessary or useful. This love is an everlasting gift. It doesn't become unnecessary like the flashlight becomes unnecessary. It doesn't become obsolete the way a piece of technology might. The old flip phone, not needed anymore. The iPhone has been out and now we're on whatever number we're up to. And that old piece of tech, obsolete. Not so with love. And when you think about it, you understand why. Love is not a means to an end. Love is God's goal with us. Because love stands at the heart of His covenant, which is His goal, which is the center of His counsel. All that God has planned and all that God does serves the establishment, the realization, and the perfection of His covenant of grace with His elect and redeemed people. That is how He will supremely glorify Himself by gathering to himself a people redeemed by the blood of Christ. And bringing them into the fellowship of his covenant. And what's at the heart of fellowship? What's at the heart of friendship? And therefore the heart of the covenant? Love. Love. True love. That's God within himself. God's intra-Trinitarian covenant life is a life of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally live in love toward one another. The goal. God's goal for you, for me, for his people is love. That he might cultivate in our hearts love for him. Love which is our response, delightful response to the amazing love with which he first loved us. His purpose is to gather us into the embrace of his everlasting love. And because his love, which is first, his love which has created love in us, because his love is eternal, he's made our love to be everlasting. That's life. That's what life really is. Life is loving God everlastingly with joy and delight because He set His eternal love on you. And a dimension of that life then is loving those that God puts in your life. You see how this gift of love in the church, within the body of Christ, is something that lasts forever. The communion of the saints is not just a temporary society. The communion of the saints is the society of heaven begun down here. And the love which is cultivated here among the saints is a love that is going to last into eternity. What a beautiful thing that is. What a gift love is. How vastly superior it is to every other temporary transitory gift. As important as they may be down here in this life. Prophecy. Knowledge. So important. Let them never be diminished. Here and now. We need them. But those things will pass. Love. Love will last. Because love. Is the beginning of heaven. Christian love is a breath of heaven's fresh air in our stagnant, fallen world. And When we love by the power of grace, there's a foretaste of heaven's sweetness. There in that love, this gift given now, but which lasts to eternity. And so we can wrap up the first point with a couple of applications. In light of this, where does love rank in our hierarchy of spiritual gifts in our own minds? Do we prize it above all? Do we strive for it above all? Do we give it the chief place? Or do we have the Corinthian problem? The Corinthian problem of fixation or prioritizing certain other gifts which are good, yes, but prioritizing or obsessing over them to such an extent that they displace the most important thing that can so easily happen. That happened in Corinth. They so prioritized tongues. They so prioritized knowledge that they didn't notice the damage that was being done in their congregation by their failure to love one another. The stronger brethren were looking down their long noses at the weaker brethren who couldn't or wouldn't eat the meat of idols. The poor were being neglected at the celebration of the Lord's Supper and the love feasts as the rich came and banqueted and Ate their food by themselves. There was the strife and there was the division. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. And all of that stemmed back to a lack of love. And contributing to it was the prioritization and the exaltation of these other gifts to a place they should not have had. Go back to the very beginning of the chapter. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the faith in the world. You can prophesy like no other. But if you do not have love... It's nothing and it's unprofitable and often it's a bunch of obnoxious noise. And that was what was going on in Corinth. A lot of obnoxious noise that was also hurtful to the body. Love keeps the other gifts in their proper place and enables them to function the way they are supposed to. Love is the bond of perfectness. So that when love gets displaced and something else is put in its chief spot, Though that thing may be good, there will be dysfunction in the body when love does not reign supreme. Paul says to the Corinthians, you've got it backwards. Love is the chief thing. And only when there is love will your prophesying and your knowledge and your tongue speaking be fruitful and profitable and God glorifying without love. It's all vain. All vain. Are we like Corinth? Let us search ourselves as individuals, as a congregation, as a denomination of churches. Some ways we could say we, we cherish, especially cherish the things Corinth did. And that's not all bad. Knowledge is important. Pure preaching is so important. But let there be love. Without love, those things do not profit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31. Covet earnestly the best gifts. Well now we come to verse 11 of the text. And there is another dimension here in the text's teaching. It shows us that Christian love is a mark of spiritual maturity here and now. Verse 11 uses an illustration following from what comes before it. Another illustration here. An illustration that contrasts our present state in this life and in this world with our future state, the everlasting state in heaven. And the illustration that the apostle uses is that of a child and an adult Contrasting childhood with adulthood. From a spiritual point of view, the church, as we live in this world, we are like children. But when we arrive in heavenly glory, in the everlasting state, we will have reached spiritual adulthood. Let's look at how this illustration works. When you think about young children, young children are immature in body and in mind. They're growing, they're developing, but as long as a child is in childhood, there is a level of immaturity. Paul says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Children think like children, with more limited knowledge, limited experiences. There are many things children do not understand. Children have a smaller, though growing, repertoire of concepts with which to interpret their experiences and make sense of the world, and yet we all recognize childish thinking when we see it. Immature thinking, or speaking. A young child that's just learning to speak has a limited vocabulary, a limited grasp of grammar. That child can communicate, but communicates in a childish way, with simple, sometimes maybe broken sentences. A young child's ability to reason is much less than an adult's. That ability to reason develops as a child matures, and so Children, especially young children, need a great deal of guidance and help in making judgments and decisions. In short, a child, as long as he or she is a child, needs instruction, needs education, needs parental guidance to help him mature. Eventually, that child will mature and outgrow childish things. Now, that earthly picture is a picture of us from a spiritual point of view as we live in this world. We are like children, spiritually. Now, it is true. The scripture describes New Testament believers as adults in comparison to the saints in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints under the law were spiritually immature in comparison to the New Testament saint who has the Spirit and is under the Gospel. There has been a great advance in maturity by the work of the Spirit poured out in Pentecost. But nonetheless, when we view the big picture, even the New Testament church today is still in childhood. We are spiritual children. It goes back to those gifts, knowledge, preaching, etc., which are in part, in part, we think, we speak, we still reason as spiritual children. We have limited knowledge, a limited ability to understand the deep things of God even our most nuanced theology, even our best doctrinal formulations are still, from a certain point of view, child's speak in comparison to the fullness that is to come. We reason Like children, spiritually, do we not? There's so much about our father's works and ways that we do not understand. Maybe we do not like and we're prone to question him, prone to doubt him, prone even to murmur against him because his ways are so much higher than ours. We are spiritual children. Thus again, the necessity of those means... Prophecy, the word, knowledge. That's necessary now because those are the means Father uses to train us, to educate us, to instruct us, to cause us to grow in spiritual maturity here below. And now that's the picture that verse 11 is painting for us. The Christian life in this world is a life... Of a spiritual child maturing unto spiritual adulthood, and that spiritual adulthood comes when the perfect is come. When we reach the perfection of heaven, and sin is gone, every infirmity is gone, and we are renewed fully in the image of Jesus Christ, then we will have attained. To full fledged spiritual adulthood. But right now, we are yet children who are maturing, who need the means of Scripture and its teaching. However, the Spirit. Spirit of Christ, poured out at Pentecost, dwelling in us, brings us more and more into spiritual maturity in this life. You sense that in Paul's words. Though the two poles, as it were, childhood, this present state in adulthood, heaven... Though those two poles are far apart, that doesn't mean there is no growth between them. Paul's words. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The way that's worded might leave the impression that Paul's saying, I'm a fully grown man right now. And that's not the idea. Full grown spiritual maturity is heaven. But there's growth. Throughout this earthly life, as God prepares us for glory, there's growth. When we talk about sanctification, we often recall the words of Lord's Day 44 that even the holiest men have only a small beginning of new obedience. That same idea is here too. Even the most spiritual of believers have but a small beginning of this full maturity. And yet, it's a real and it is a significant beginning. Just as our sanctification in this life is real and it is significant. So what does spiritual maturing look like? What does spiritual maturity look like? Manifest itself as. How do believers grow spiritually? What marks spiritual maturity? And the text makes clear love, love. Love is that one Spiritual gift that's going to last into eternity. It's that spiritual gift that lasts into our spiritual adulthood. Love is the mark of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean we get to be superior over other common believers. We can dispense of preaching. We don't need to read the Bible. We don't need the communion of the saints. No, that kind of thinking is childish. It's the kind of thinking that a wayward teenager might have who thinks he's so mature and so he doesn't need any more education or instruction. That's not the case. But spiritual maturity shows itself in this. Increasing love for God and the neighbor. More and more love exercising an influence and a dominance over my life, my thinking, my acting, my behavior, my desires, my words, my thoughts. Love is the mark of spiritual maturity and a lack of love is a mark of spiritual immaturity. Think about that in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 8, the beginning of the chapter, speaks about the pride that many in Corinth had about their knowledge. Because they had such knowledge, they thought they were better than other believers who had less knowledge than they. They esteemed themselves on account of this gift of knowledge to be very mature believers. And Paul... Here says, oh no, you're actually showing your spiritual immaturity. Pride. Pride is spiritual immaturity. Pride says, I've already attained, I don't need to learn more. I don't need any more, I can lift myself up and look down on others. Pride, vaunting oneself, being puffed up is the opposite of love. But growth in grace, growth in maturity, progress in sanctification, looks like this. Love, love. And so a few applications that we can glean from verse 11 here. First is humility, humility, we're children yet. Let's not think ourselves to be bigger or more grown up than we actually are. And when we remember that we are spiritual children, we will adopt an attitude of humility before God our Father and have a receptive spirit to his instruction, to his chastening. And when we recognize the reality that we are still spiritual children in this life, we will not lift ourselves up in pride over one another. What do we have to boast in? nothing to boast of ourselves. It will lead to a, a theological humility as well. As much as we will cherish the doctrine of the Scriptures, as much as we will delve into the Scriptures, mining the rich truths, as much as we desire to see doctrinal development and to preserve and protect and defend the true doctrines of the Scripture, we will not make our doctrine something to be proud about. Because we remember it's still only in part. It's Still only in part. The perfect has not yet come. Humility. Humility. But then this, we will see the implicit calling in the text. Calling which Paul is giving to the Corinthians. And which comes to us. Make the cultivation of and the growth in Christian love your priority. Just as a child must mature and that child is going to use and be made to use all of the important available means for his maturing, so too the Christian must make spiritual maturing in love his priority. The everlasting gift of love is of greatest importance. Being a Christian is not merely filling your head. Being a Christian is not merely being busy with your hands. Being a Christian is loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And a head full of knowledge, if coupled with an empty heart is worthless. A man might be able to debate theology with the best of them, but if he doesn't have love, he's still a spiritual baby. Love. This love is that more excellent way. That best gift that Paul says, covet, earnestly seek after, cultivate, express it, live it. So, what does spiritual maturity look like? Just look back at the portrait of true love that has been painted for us as we've gone through verses 4, 5, 6. And seven. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. That's what we are to seek. That's how we are to live as God's people, as His children. The comfort is that the love of God. Expressed, shown, demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Is the love that works. This love in us. You look at 1 Corinthians 13 and everything we've studied so far. And you say, there's no way this is going to come from me. I can't do this of myself because my inclinations are the very opposite. But our spiritual maturing is guaranteed because it's been obtained for us through the blood of our Savior. And the power, the power that is at work to bring about that maturing is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we rest with that comfort and we rejoice in that reality. We look at this text and we take its word and say, prayer in our heart and on our lips. Father, teach me and cause me to grow in love that more and more I may mature in that love and put off these childish things, sin, and all of the rest. More and more. I love thee. Love my neighbor as myself. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this Word which so beautifully contrasts our present state with the state of perfection which is to come and highlights the wonder of this chief of Thy gifts, true Christian love. Grant that we may covet this best of gifts and may more earnestly live it out in our lives. That we may be fruitful. And that we may bring glory to thee in this way. Above all, we thank thee for the love thou hast shown to us in Jesus Christ. Everlasting, saving love. Which never fails. Amen.